Billy Piper, Patrick Lacey, S.E. Howard, Waylon Jordan, and Jeremy Herbert. Five acclaimed authors of horror and dark fiction. Their twisted tales appeared in the acclaimed horror anthology Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press. Now, their tales of vacation terror are coming to the big screen in a feature film adaptation from Genre Blast Films. Five acclaimed genre filmmakers will bring these stories to life. Samantha Koyesnik, John Hale, Vanessa Yonta Wright, Michael Escobedo, and Jeremy Herbert. Worst Laid Plans. Now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. This is one vacation you'll be dying to take. <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace, now a part of the Silver Shamrock Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. That's right. Now you can watch your favorite episodes, including this one, by searching for Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. My Hello, everybody. <laughs> and today we're joined by author Greg Sisko. Hello, sir. Hello. Now, let's just jump right into it. What got you into horror? Oh, man. I... <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I've been writing since like second grade. Uh, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I always had a project going, and often those projects were horror. Uh, so, to some extent, I just seem to have been sort of born into it. <clears throat> so, when you were writing those stories in second grade, were you the kid that? You know, everybody thought it was cool that you were writing about, like, you know, let's say, let's just go ahead and assume you were writing about, like, dismembered bodies or, oh, I don't know, creepy dolls or something like that. Or did they yeah. stay away from you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose I was not a very popular kid in school. And looking back, that could have had that, <laughs> that could have had an effect on it. <laughs> that could have done it, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I want to jump into your background in movies. What got you started into that? Um, uh, I mean, uh, really around the same uh, time that I got started writing books, I, uh, or writing stories as a little kid, uh, I, had, I had friends who uh, would make like uh, home movies with, you know, our parents' camcorders or whatever. So, uh, you know, from, from early childhood, I was doing both of them. Um, and, uh, you know, for a long time, it was like writing 
prose, short stories and stuff, was one aspect of what was interesting to me. And then the other aspect was acting. Uh, and it took a long time to sort of put the two of them together in terms of like, well, what about writing movies and directing movies? What about uh, um, being the, you know, the creative force behind uh, behind the off camera, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I... <clears throat> It was really, uh, it was like late teens that I really started going into like uh, writing for the screen and and uh, and some some directing work on a couple of things and uh, yeah, just just sort of starting to put put writing together with movies in a in a in a way of uh, of putting the, the the two old hobbies together as one. Okay, and I see here that Gunslinger PI man, he did like everything for that. Do you want to talk about that at all? <laughs> um, I mean, it, that movie is basically what I did instead of going to film school, um, and it's uh, it's very amateurish. It was it was done, you know. It was I was I think seventeen when I wrote it, eighteen when we shot it, and nineteen when I did all of the editing and post production. Hmm. And it was, uh, yeah, it was just something that was done like on nights and weekends when I was, uh, working at my, my first real job, uh, after, after having dropped out of college and trying to basically learn how to make movies by making a movie, which is pretty much what happened. The, the, the movie itself, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's it's a movie that was made by a kid who didn't really know how to make movies, but uh, some of the stuff that we shot earlier on uh, is um, you know didn't come out very well, and some of the stuff we were shooting by the end did come out pretty well. Uh, so it was it was definitely a, a learning project, and I you know I, I later revisited it as a as a novel or kind of a no, novella one of. Sort of somewhere between the line of novella and novel, uh, mm-hmm. ten years or so later, to try and kind of fix some of the stuff that I that I didn't really uh, think quite turned out like like I'd hoped back when I was eighteen years old and trying to make a movie. I hear you. When I uh, shot my only feature, which was well, it's not even a feature, twenty minutes. I mean, I was going for a stoner comedy, and I had a lot of help with seasoned filmmakers, so. I don't know what it would have turned out like if I did it by myself. <laughs> now, yeah, uh, what what was that first job, the first real job you had? Uh, I was working in a movie theater. Um, I started off selling popcorn in the concession stand. Um, I think by the time we shot the movie, I was working as a projectionist. Um, so, you know, projectionist as a job where you're not doing a lot of uh hands-on work you know you're mostly just keeping an eye on things making sure that stuff uh that there are no problems and you know every uh every little while starting another uh projector up so uh yeah i had a lot of downtime up there in the booth where uh you know i'd be uh trying to make plans for the shoots and call and text people and try and put uh put together um shooting days on our our nights and our weekends and 
<laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty much, what would that have been like 2006? That was probably the, the whole of my 2006. That's pretty interesting. So while you're in charge of running movie times, you're in between doing your own movie. Right. Right. That's and we, cool. we, um, when it was finished, we were able to play it at, uh, at the theater. It was like this 21 screen multiplex and, uh, <laughs> spent months trying to negotiate uh, further and further up the chain of command to somebody who would actually uh, be able to approve it. But uh, eventually we were able to get them to say that as long as it was a nonprofit thing, like we didn't charge anybody for admission or something, they would uh, open one theater up for us for a few hours one night. So we, we were able to do our premiere in the theater where, I worked and where half the cast worked. Uh, so that was, that was, that was a pretty fun sort of, uh, sort of finish to that project. Neat. Uh, Brendan, you got anything on this subject? I, you know, I was just going to put in the whole, I, 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 there's so much value in learning by immersion. Um, and I think that's, it's definitely true in the arts, you know, uh, playing in a band versus studying the theory in music, uh, learning by doing, you know, as opposed to, again, studying the theory in a classroom uh, for movie making. But I mean, even I always think of, um, you know, I, I went to school uh, to be a teacher for four years and studied the again, for lack of better words, the theory of it. And I don't think I learned a quarter as much as I did in, you know, three months of student teaching. Um, it, that, that degree is, you don't want to call it useless, but, um, it's, it's that real life experience that, you know, makes for the best art. Um, and you can't, you just can't beat that, um, learning by doing. Um, so actually as, in regards to you working as a projectionist, does that tie in at all to how you wrote Summers with Annie for uh, the Worst Laid Plans anthology? Um, I don't know. I mean, there uh, there might be. I can't even. I'm trying to remember if there's anything like technical about projection that's in that uh, story. I know. I know that uh, the old man who works in the theater runs the projectors. I, I guess there's talk of like real changes, which aren't even really a thing that people do anymore. Um, these days, well, these days everything's digital, but, uh, when, uh, when I was working in theaters, um, the films, uh, you'd, you'd splice together all, all of the reels and they'd just sit in this one big donut of film and play through the whole thing. So, uh, it was it was all done pretty automatically back in the old days. They had to run two projectors side by side, and right as one reel ended, they'd have to manually flip things over to the other uh, projector to start the other reel. And uh, um, so I, I I know quite a bit about that stuff, but um, but I don't know. You know, I I just always kind of wanted to write a. Uh, a piece of prose that was about like the love of cinema. Um, and that's, that's kind of what summers with Annie was, was just an idea of, uh, of how to do that. And actually started off as a much uh, bigger idea when, uh, 
when I was thinking about how to how to tell the story, I was trying to take like a protagonist who the idea was to go from uh, his birth on the day that movies got sound, uh, which in some ways is the birth of modern cinema, um, all the way up to present day and tell his life story at the same time as telling like the whole history of cinema. Um, but by the time I got up to him being like 16, 17 years old, it was just like, this is clearly not something I can cram into a short story. There's just, you know, I, I, I forget what the, that anthology I, I, that I, I, I wrote it specifically for worst laid plans. And it was, you know, 5,000, 6,000 words, something like that was the upper limit. And I, I just started going like, what I'm starting to write here is like 20,000 at least. Uh, you know, it might be novel length to try and to try and tell this entire life story and the entire history of cinema. So uh, so it sort of morphed into something else and uh, has been uh, really like I've, I've heard a lot of people tell me how much they love that story. And, uh, it was, it was, it was nice to hear because when I finished it, it was like, wow, that was, I don't know what this is. This isn't what I set out to write, but, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with it. Um, you know, that forgive my clumsily worded question. You know, I, when I, when I said, did, uh, you know, that job have any, um, effect on that story? I, I didn't necessarily mean the technical aspect, but even just, you know, you said you wrote it almost as, or at least started writing it as a love letter to cinema. And I mean, I feel like it also acts as, you know, a love letter to kind of that small movie house or smaller scale movie house, um, especially on like um, in the type of location where where that, you know, cinema is located, where it's kind of like an island getaway. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I would echo what you've heard that that was one of my favorite stories in there. And it has those horror elements but it also has this sense of beauty to it as well it's a it's a really terrific story right i, I really I, I really wanted it to be uh you know in in some ways like a romance not really like i mean i guess it has the kind of boy girl love story romance aspect to it that's part of it but more like a romance of just like um you know, romantic, uh, romantic love for cinema itself and for the idea of getting lost in a story and, 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 uh, having a world wash over you and stuff. And it was, you know, I wanted that sort of, uh, optimistic quality tied in with the, with the horror quality of it. Can you tell, uh, for those that haven't read it yet, what the basic plot is? Um, it's it's about a uh, uh, a little boy who had a um, a life that's uh, that's always the key events in his life have always uh, matched up with the key events in the history of film, and uh, when he's uh, about uh, six years old, I think he goes on this trip with his father. Uh, who is also a lover of movies uh, to this island that has a movie that was filmed on the island and the two of them go in to watch it and the kid falls asleep uh, before the end of the movie and his father disappears and they never 
find him. He just vanishes out of the movie house. And, uh, and then it, it follows his life growing up as a, as a, you know, working in movie theaters and using films as escapism for a difficult upbringing that he's had as an orphan, uh, up to his marriage when he returns to the island with his new wife, uh, with a plan to go visit the movie house where his, where his father disappeared when he was a kid and sort of his ultimate discovery that the movies have one more surprise in store for him in his life. It was really, yeah, it, it was really neat. It was like the third story, I think, in the anthology. Um, by the way, how cool is that? For those video watchers, I'm holding, or actually audio listeners, I'm holding up the uh, Worst Laid Plans anthology paperback. Um, how cool is that that the adaptation got its funds? Yeah. And some. Right, right, and it's still going. Yeah, yeah, 20-something days left by the time this comes out, probably like, 15 days or so. I think so that's until the end of March. Uh, I think is when the, when the April ended. 2nd is when it ends. April 2nd, April 3rd. Okay. Uh Yeah, and it's uh it's already it's already past what it was uh what it was seeking and and hopefully with plenty more because as as you know, if you've worked on an independent film, there's never enough money. <laughs> no such thing as the right amount. <laughs> are are you hoping that a novel that you write in the future is turned into? And I I'll let me clarify why specifically I'm asking this. Do you hope that it becomes a film, or do you not care? And I ask specifically because recently we had another fellow Canadian horror author, Tim McGregor who, for those that don't know, had a book released with the same publisher, Off Limits Press, uh, about, um, last month. I think it was last month, Brennan? Yeah. I think you're right. February 15th comes to uh, mind. I don't know, man. Time just doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> but but um, he said that he worked in... <laughs> the way he worded it, he, he said that his films basically, they're just don't watch them. <laughs> They were um, what? What do you say? They're like uh, they're straight to DVD, and he at this point doesn't really care for that world anymore, the adaptation world or the film world. So, okay, this is a long about way of me asking you if if you are in that same camp, or if you have interest in pursuing um, other projects in film. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely interest in pursuing other projects in film and i've got i've got scripts that are out there circulating i have uh uh you know i have i have literary management for and for films who, who help me uh get scripts out there and there's you know there's various stuff that's in in, in different stages that may or may not happen um often in writing a book i start by writing a screenplay mm-hmm. um i i find that a screenplay is very literal and bare bones and forces you into active storytelling you can't you can't really <laughs> it's much harder to to <laughs> to slip into like passive voice stuff in a screenplay format 
than it is uh, in in prose. Um, so, you know, you 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 end up uh, telling a story in in a, in a very show don't tell manner um, by by habit, I think, in uh, in a screenplay format more so than in prose, and uh, it tends to work well for me as sort of a roadmap of what what the story's going to look like from start to finish, what the beats are. And, uh, and then in going from screenplay to prose, it's like turning on the director brain. That's, that's, you know, trying to paint the visuals more clearly and trying to, um, you know, jump into the, the inner motivations and monologues and stuff of, uh, of people's thought processes that probably don't have much of a place on the page in a screenplay, but, uh, but give it all its flavor in, in prose. So, uh, yeah, in the, in the cases of some of the, uh, novels that I've written and, and many of the short stories as well, I, I started with a screenplay and then, um, turned it into prose from there. So a lot of the time I end up with a screenplay that's ready to go by the time the, the uh, novel's done anyway. Oh, wow. Wow. Brennan, any follow-ups with that? Or do you want to jump into the, uh, in nightmares were alone. I'm just thinking like how prepared you are. You know, you, if somebody wants to, to option the rights to a novel, you can sell them a screenplay the next day. That's brilliant thinking, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then some of the cases I, I do not have a screenplay for in nightmares were alone. Although, uh, I, I'm, I'm toying with it there. It's possible. It's a now, tough, uh, it's a, it's a tough adaptation. It's a weird story. Hey, it's already in acts. You're good. Um, <laughs> now, um, was was worst laid plans kind of taking us into in nightmares were alone? Was worst laid plans um, submitting to that your first interaction with Samantha Koyesnik? Uh No, I know her from film festivals. Hmm. Um, I I believe I met her in uh, 2017 at the Genre Blast Film Festival, um, and she would have had a short film there. I I had a screenplay called College Beach Party Massacre Four, uh, <laughs> that uh, they they run an unproduced screenplay competition as well as a film festival, and uh, yeah, I. Uh, I, I won the screenplay competition and uh, she asked if she could read it. And we've kind of been talking ever since then, passing projects back and forth and uh, writing, each writing our own stuff. Uh, I think, I think Worst Laid Plans was the first time we really got to like work on something on the same project together. Did you write the first three massacre <laughs> films? <laughs> no, no. Although I, I knew stuff about them. We, we had a, we, we had a joke of, uh, at, at the time when I originally wrote that script, we were trying to, uh, raise some funding and do it on this little shoestring budget. And, uh, we had a joke where we were going to try and, uh, put up blog posts and stuff with all this information about the first three films and, you know, like dig up old reviews that we discovered <laughs> for the first three films. And we were going to put fake trailers together for them, uh, for <laughs> college beach party massacre one, two 
and College Beach Party Massacre 3D in Space. <laughs> what the hell? It's it's bad when it goes into space that quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. so, the, joke, the joke was supposed to be that the whole thing went off the rails in part three, and now they were scrambling to try and save <laughs> save it from that by bringing back the director from two that was like a cult favorite. We had this whole behind the scenes backstory of what uh, you know. We 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 talked about doing like a fake like mockumentary behind the scenes thing for the DVD. There were a lot of plans that never actually happened on uh, <laughs> on College Beach Party Massacre. I don't even know what to ask. I feel like I have questions, but I can't even think of them. <laughs> Brian, no, the Brian second, t- save me. <laughs> the second film that I made, which is uh, more more watchable than the first one, at least, uh, a thing called Jesse Thunderwake, American Icon. Uh, we we ended up with um, a whole storyline in there where the, the character was... Uh, uh, it's, it's all mockumentary style, and it's about a guy who wants to be like the next great writer, director, actor, singer, songwriter, stuntman, model, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, we had a section of the movie where he, he ends up working on College Beach Party Massacre 4. <laughs> we were able to sort of bring our own joke full circle into a uh, into a different movie and recycle it for that. It's like Inception, man. It's a movie and a movie and a movie. Yeah. <laughs> That is exceptionally meta. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So in in Nightmares We're Alone. Now, this was originally published in 2015. Uh, Greg, if you don't mind, why don't you take us through, you know, basically the journey of uh, putting this book together all the way up to 2021? Man, it has been a long journey. I I have a... uh, uh, there's like a post from my uh, my Facebook page back in uh, 2013 uh, where I – for a long time I had had two like actual nightmares that I'd had uh, that I had just sort of set aside as like that might be – that might make a good short story or something. Um one one that involved a, a doll and dolls that my mom used to collect when I was a kid, uh, and and one that involved plants growing out of my fingernails, and and, and I, I had this third nightmare about uh, like people being afraid to leave rooms in uh, in my house, and sort of woke up from it thinking like that could be like a third. I could maybe package those three if they were like novella length. Uh, stories put them put them all in one cover and uh, they could be they could maybe work well together and at the time that I had that idea uh, you know like July 2013 or something I, I had posted like wonder if I could have this done by Halloween <laughs> spoiler I didn't uh, it was just one of those cases of like the worst attempt uh, uh, or the, the worst overly optimistic uh um idea of how long it would take to do something and uh but at the time the idea was for them to be three separate stories um just packaged in one cover and i think i was about halfway through the first one 
uh, and just went for a walk and uh, started like stuff started coming together in my head that, about like, well, what if they were, you know, what if the girl from the first one, what if the boy who she meets, you know, what if the guy in the second story is that boy's father and uh, you know, what if, how would that tie together with this other aspect of this? And the whole thing started to just like blend into a, a more complicated idea of this, uh, of these three stories that were kind of one story. Um, they're separate, but they're also the same in some ways and, and happening in the same world at the same time. Um, and man, it, it turned into just this nightmare of trying to, uh, reconcile one thing with another and, and try and not to mention the first draft that I ended up with, I, I was really unsatisfied with the ending of the third story, but trying to make changes to one of the stories when everything's happening at the same time in all three and people keep bumping into each other and affecting the other's trajectory. It's this Rubik's cube thing where you can't fix one side without screwing up the other side. And it, it, it turned into like a solid two years of working on it constantly. And, uh, you know, like normally I have a lot of fun with writing, but, but by the time I was like a year into it, I was just so frustrated with this thing of like, I don't, I would like to scrap this project, but it's uh, it's like it's caught on to this point in my head to where it's like I feel like I have this uh, this thing that's the best thing I've ever written that I'm chasing that I just can't quite shape the way it's supposed to be. And uh, yeah, it, uh, by the time that I uh, well, I it, I didn't even really finish it exactly when I originally published it self-published it um i i just i hit a point where it was like i i wanted to be rid of it so that i could work on other stuff and I, every time i tried to just like well i'll set this aside and i'll write something else and come back to it i just feel guilty working on something else that like well what about this thing that's like it's almost there so i just hit this point where i said i, I picked a date and announced it and said it's coming out october 16th, 2017 or whatever, whatever, whenever it was that it originally came out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just started telling everybody it comes out that day and just told myself like, wh whatever is written on that day gets published. So, you know, feel free to obsess over it until that moment. But, uh, at that moment you just wash your hands of the thing and move on, which it was pretty good at that point. It's almost the, the version that you have now. Um, you know, it's, it's quite similar to the version that was published a few years ago. Um, there were little things that I could never quite sort out back then. Uh, but the problem with that was the idea of trying to self publish something that you're eager to wash your hands of is just not a good situation to be in because when you're trying to create your own publicity, and it's for something that you just want to put in the rearview mirror. Uh, it's it's very hard to do a good job with it. So I, uh, you know, the the self published version never really caught on. Never, uh, uh, <laughs> there wasn't much publicity for it. I kind of just almost like dropped it 
online and just went, ah, there you go, I'm, I'm moving on. And, and I didn't even write for a long time after that. I was so tired of the thing at that point. Um, and yeah, it just it sat there for a long time until Samantha Koyesnik read it uh, a couple years ago and was asking me, like, why don't more people know about this? And I was like, oh, because I like severely dropped the ball when I re released it. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we started talking about um, about having me uh, go back to it and properly finish it and turn it into the the book that it was supposed to be and, and, uh, and put it out through off limits. And, uh, man, it was an interesting experience to go back to something I had walked away from for two years or three, four years. I don't, uh, I can't keep track of the years anymore. The time uh, doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, for, for years I hadn't, uh, hadn't even looked at it. And, uh, in, in going back in and like, cracking it open it was like uh it's it's like you don't necessarily feel like you're making leaps when you're when you're you know when it's like a craft that you've been doing your whole life it's it's just like oh, i know i, I kind of know how it works you, you get a little better at doing something or whatever but when it, when that much time had gone by it was interesting to just go back through something and constantly be like well okay but that paragraph we don't need and this one you know we can blend these two together into something a lot tighter here and then this this sentence is kind of just saying the same thing three times in three different ways and uh it was, it was just, it was pretty, most of the cleanup was pretty effortless. Not to mention there were old scenes that I had loved that I wrote years ago, but cut before I self-published it because uh, they didn't, they didn't seem to be fitting properly. And looking at them years later, it was like, well, I know why it's not. I know that the reason I loved it was because it was adding this. And the reason it wasn't fitting was because of all this other stuff that was in there that didn't need to be there. But we can just subtract that stuff and insert this stuff in a different way. So, um, yeah, like the whole the whole ending of the second story works much better in the in the new version. That whole epilogue um, is is new to the to the new version. Um, it uh, it all. It, it all fits together a lot more tightly than it, than it used to before. And it's, it's just been an interesting, uh, interesting experience to go through, uh, an extremely frustrating project and then walk away from it for a few years and come back to it and be able to, uh, approach it in a happy, uh, productive way. And, and, uh, you know, I think turn it into pretty much the thing that I was chasing years ago that, uh, that I wasn't good enough at the time to pull off. That's that's really cool. I mean, just that the the idea of you know writing. I, I I'm gonna put words in your mouth. You tiptoed around it, but writing kind of a magnum opus. Like this is you you kind of hinted at. This is the best thing you you'd written, and by 2017 or whenever you just wanted it off your plate, it wasn't done yet. You weren't you know at the point where you could tie it all together. So to be able to kind of come back to it in 2020. Uh, tighten it up and put it out this March. Like that's that's excellent, man. Good for you. Right. And you, yeah, it's not very often that you get the chance to do something like that of like a project where where you you feel like you sort of botched it a little bit and it was almost something, but you didn't quite get to make it into what it was supposed to be. 
most of the time you just kind of have to live with that and take the lessons from it with you and move on to the next thing. But, uh, but it was pretty cool to get an opportunity with, with off limits where I could come back to it and, and, uh, turn it into, I think what it was supposed to be and, and get a second chance at putting it out there and seeing if, uh, seeing how people respond to it. Yeah. Part, part one was so, so creepy, man. Like that's, one of the creepiest things I've ever read. I think it's safe to say. <laughs> really, I, at least, there's so many stories about dolls, but like, I don't know. You did something different, and at some points, because I, uh, due to my lifestyle, I gotta really listen to a lot of the digital books, and you know, text to speech. I found myself laughing out loud while I was in the middle of doing something else. And it was that scene where this doesn't spoil anything. It's it's that scene where Martin trusts this big old wing on uh, a stick figure, and uh, then this other boy talks about some uh, I don't know childish joke about I think he said peeing on division. And I'm like that's funny, <laughs> but it's so creepy. And you break it up with that really silly moment, and then it gets you, know, you get punched in the face with something just as creepy as the previous moment. So I, I thought it was fantastic. It was a great mix of those two things. I, I started off writing mostly comedy for uh, for years. I mean, throughout throughout high school and, and into kind of up to about my mid twenties. Um, most of what I wrote was, uh, you know, the primary focus was to tell effective jokes with it. And mm. I, I did some stand up comedy though. I was never very good at it. Um, I, you know, a comedy was like a big part of, of a, a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff bef- before I sort of, uh, increasingly find myself drawn to, horror and thriller stuff, but that, um, that note of humor is always, is almost always there. Like, I don't, I don't think Summers with Annie really had much levity to it, but, um, in, in most of what I write, I think it still retains, uh, I tend to find that like humor is such a huge part of how people communicate with each other that even when the focus of the story is something dark or grim or whatever people have a tendency to seek out the the humor in the situations and um to to use it whether it's as defense or whether it's to just try and uh uh, you know lighten someone else's burden or whatever so uh so yeah, it tends to be that regardless of how dark something goes, I, I like I like for there to be a current of uh, of some sort of humor that that uh, runs throughout it. I'm pretty sure it was Tom Savini. I was watching one of my favorite movies, um, my first Romero. My first intro to George Romero was uh, the Nightmare of the I mean <laughs> not Nightmare Night of the Living Dead, the 1990 remake. Yeah, I love I love the behind the scenes stuff. I was taught young by my uncle who did independent film that uh, those are free lessons and they're worth listening to. And I'm glad I took that. I heeded his advice because uh, they say a lot of things that can apply to any type of writing. But he um, Tom Savini was talking about how 
he'll show you something on this side of the screen, and then, like a magician, the scary parts on that side of the screen, and it'll come and hit you in the face. And and I'm kind of repeating myself, but that's that's what you did in part one specifically. Um, Brandon, what what do you have to say about this? Well, first off, back to your thing about injecting humor. I think that's so human. You know, uh, even in the worst situations, you know, trying to lighten the mood and and add that bit of levity. I feel like it, you know, when when authors do that, even even in the midst of a bleak tale, um, it just injects authenticity. That's kind of how I read it, you know, like um, when what the the scene that Patrick brings up where, you know, he the where, where Martin draws uh, a guy with his Johnson hanging out on the uh, chalkboard like that's that's every you know uh, second grader especially second grader who's you know maybe stayed back once or twice <laughs> um, you know, it reminds me of um, uh, the uh, Max Booth's novella that he put out last year we need to do something it's a great novella it's grim it's bleak as fuck if you haven't read it but yeah it's got great humor in it and the the you know the the little boy in there is always talking about butts and farts and like constantly <laughs> and and you know I I remember seeing some reviews being like oh you know that's obnoxious and nobody talks like that it's like no you've never been around an eight year old because that's a, that's exactly what they're saying and you know that's again it just it kind of added for me that that air of authenticity um, I I also loved going back your comment about comparing it to like a Rubik's cube. Like that's especially lining everything up with the dates that that had to be a nightmare. Um, You know, changing one thing and not, not only just skewing the way it affects the other two uh, acts, but making sure like, shit, did that happen on September 30th? (laughs) Yeah. Do you have multiple timelines on a course uh, cork board or something, man? Like how'd you get that set up? You know, and it's it's worse than you would think because when I started writing it, um, I I was I was experimenting with something in the first draft where I was trying to just write two thousand words every day, um, but exactly two thousand. Like even in the middle of a sentence, I'd just stop when I got to two thousand and go back the next day, and. Uh, and, and it worked well. I mean, you tend not to lose your train of thought as much because you you just you have to stop yourself when you're in the middle of, a, of some sort of train of thought sometimes. But um, so I was writing it that way and I was writing it without revising it, but I was writing it without an outline. Uh, and I, I kind of I had like I said, all three were based on dreams that I'd had. So I, I kind of had vague ideas of the direction that uh, that they would go. Although really, only the dream for the first story had a, a real like through line of a story to it. The others were just kind of visuals. Um, but so I wrote those three stories over the course of uh, five weeks or so uh, with no outline and. For the first half of while I was writing it, I, I didn't even realize that they were going to be connected. So I just ended up with three very disconnected stories and then had to find ways to marry them after the fact, after they already existed, which, uh, yeah, was was terrible because they... Um, 
you it's like you search out ways to link them but then you find things you want to change about one of them and you have to unlink these things that you previously linked uh and you know i, I it it would have been much easier to do if I had written the three stories side by side in some sort of giant bullet list outline uh, from the beginning. But I, I just I didn't realize what I was writing when I started writing it and uh, trying to reconcile it after the fact. was uh, I mean, it was a big part of why it became just this this uh, this um, out of control project that I that I couldn't find a way to get a handle on for so long let's go back to when uh sam first read your manuscript and you said it was like let's just say 2017 so it's at least a few years before she has her press um did she see a version that was similar to the one that we saw and at what point did she approach you when or before she uh, announced Off Limits Press was a thing? Uh, well, Off Limits Press was a thing before she approached me. Mm. Uh, she, she read it before she had a press. Um, and at the time that she read it, uh, she was just telling me, like, you should re-release this, or you should, you know, either find a publisher or, like, do a new edition or something. Like, you should do something because more people should read this. And, uh, you know, it was kind of sticking in my head for, um, I don't know, probably, it was probably six months or a year between when she, when I had that conversation with her and then, uh, um, yeah, to the, to the point where she started her own press. And then, uh, you know, once the, uh, I don't know, she'd probably been running the press for, uh, at least, uh, you know, they were up to. At least one book had been released. Maybe maybe two books had been released by the time that we the conversation started turning into well, what if what if it was published through Off Limits, which kind of took it from from this idea of like yeah maybe I should do that maybe I should consider it to like ah, I'd really like to do something with Off Limits that would be pretty fun. Let's uh, <laughs> let's go back to this project which which you know had always kind of been an intimidating project because it was just like i had such a bad relationship with his story by the time that i i walked away from it the first time there was just part of me that was like yeah i promised myself i didn't have to go back to that again (laughs) but but no i had a good time with it when i went back to it And, yeah, I, I think the version of it that she read is is fairly close you know the 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 two the two editions of it you know I probably got it 90% of the way there last time and just couldn't figure out that last 10%. And this, this new edition has just been about, about going back and fixing that, that 10% that I could never quite get there uh, previously. So um, I, I really like that you shared that they were all based on nightmares, whether they were fully fleshed out or just kind of like a mental image or two. Cause w- when I was looking at the acts, you know, I, I kind of took away from them that they all kind of lean into a subgenre. and, you know, maybe this is just me putting my bent on it, but you know, the first one it's, it's, you could say it's doll horror. I've got another one in mind, but I don't want to say it, you know, for fear of spoilers. 
Um, the second one is just, you know, master. Here's how body horror is done, people. Um, and then the third one has this kind of like quiet literary quality to it. Um, now, was that something that you noticed, uh, you know, the difference in kind of subgenres and styles and leaned into or just it was what it was? Um, I, uh, I, I started thinking early on about, um, TV shows that are like anthology horror shows. Um, and I, uh, I started picturing, uh, the first one as like an episode of, um, some of the various Stephen King anthology shows that have been done. Like, uh, I think they did a nightmares and dreamscapes TV show and, uh, uh, I forget what else there have been a handful of them, but, uh, I, I kind of pictured it as like this, this would be kind of at home as an episode of, of something like one of those, or maybe even like a tales from the dark side. Um, and, and the second one to me was, was like masters of horror on <laughs> showtime. It was like, this is, this is the graphic throw everything you got against the wall and and the third one was Twilight Zone, and the third the third one even mentions Twilight Zone, and it's it's kind of you know, I was trying to do something kind of in that old Rod Serling style of uh, of very um, quiet character driven, uh, and the horror is uh, kind of off screen, not really seen. I mean, that's the story is that thing you don't quite see. Uh, so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to some extent I saw, uh, I thought of one, I thought of the third one, at least early on, as being a haunted house story. Um, I, I thought of the uh, second one as being body horror and uh, the first uh, as as doll horror. Um, and and I, I, I kind of matched the tones to these various TV shows. Um, and... Yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I think. I think that's yeah. kind of what it was born out of. No, that's 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 perfect. Um, that that makes all the sense. You know, now I'm thinking like, uh, part one almost has kind of a creep show vibe to it too. That's, yeah, that's yeah, one that yeah. could fit in there pretty nicely. Pat, throw it to you, man. I can't think of the title, but Richard Madison had a I Am Legend collection with I Am Legend and a bunch of short stories. And they have this one neat witch one where it, it's it's got this one scene where you could see. I might be mixing up the exact scenario, but the the witch could see you through your eyes. And I kept thinking of that story when I was reading part one. But moving on to part two, um, my God, I cringed a lot. <laughs> because hangnails are a bitch, man, and that's that's got nothing on this. Now, did you only dream of that one time, or was that a recurring nightmare? It was. It was just one time. I had a and and I I didn't even I I, I didn't even have a lot of memory of what the dream was. I just I just remember that I had this nightmare that I was. Uh, that I had plants growing out of my, under my fingernails and I was like ripping them out, trying to like blend in as a normal person <laughs> in society, uh, well, where they were growing more and more. And, 
I just, you know, that imagery, like I woke up from that and just thought like plants growing out of your fingernails is pretty gruesome. I'm, I'm not sure there must be a story behind that, that I could chase down somehow. Uh, and yeah, I mean, and in some ways it, it became a story about a guy who, uh, who struggles to blend into the world and struggles to have a life as a normal human being. Um, and I mean, the, the other way that I had separated the stories was sort of like, uh, a birth life and death kind of thing. You've got this young, uh, coming of age story for a, you know, a, a person who's just sort of reaching a point where you get to have a life of your own in the world. And then you have, uh, someone who is, who is, uh, you know, having a key shift in the middle of his life. And then you have someone who's kind of approaching the tail end of her life, uh, as the, as the three stories that, uh, that share all of these different, um, aspects together. So, so that second story being growth as I, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's growth in terms of the things coming out of his fingernails, but it's <laughs> also, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the story of the guy who's kind of having to, having to finally face the moment where he's got to pass from being sort of a man child into being a real member of society. I like how, uh, with the first part one, the protagonist Macy, you see her mother in one light. Then part two, you see her in a second light, and that just speaks on kind of life. You know, one person has one way, and someone else will surely know them in a completely different way, in a pealing way. Right, right, yeah. That was that was kind of on the key night where I went for that walk and started, uh, started seeing the three stories as one story. That was kind of one of the big revelations that I was finding. There's a, there's a moment in the third story, a uh, key moment where, where the character sees a banner that says, be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Um, and, and that, that was kind of a scene that came to me as on, when I was on that walk. And I just started thinking of like, this idea of trying to show people in different lights and trying to like make a reader hate people and then like later look at them and understand them a little more and see like, yeah, I was, I was kind of being unfair when I judged that person. And like Macy's mother is a good example of, uh, you know, when you, when you read the first story, you're just like, God, this woman is terrible. I hate <laughs> this woman. And uh, then I think, uh, if I, if I pulled it off, well, when you're, when you're reading her in the second story, it's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess we, we all have bad days. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe she's, she's got some qualities that aren't so bad about her and, you know, and, and kind of the same thing with, with Macy's teacher, um, mm -hmm. is, is she just, she just, you know, you read the first story and she seems terrible. It's yeah. like, God, I'd hate to have this woman as a teacher. <laughs> and, uh, and the third story, it's like, you well, know, she has a pretty hard life in general though. Is that a mantra that you have in real, in a day-to-day -day situation where, uh, basically reserve judgment because you don't know what journey they're going through or what path they're walking I, I mean, it's it's something that I should have as a mantra. <laughs> you, you try to keep that in mind. You try to have empathy for for people who uh, who you're you have bad interactions with. But uh, it's uh, 
uh, at the same time, everybody, um, you know, everybody has that, uh, that everybody's got the flaws and the virtues, like, uh, and uh, you know, the, each of us is no different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you fall into bad patterns with people and you, you dislike people maybe for reasons that aren't entirely fair or that you're not properly seeing the two sides of. And that, uh, yeah, I was, I was trying to do a lot of that with this story where see things in one light and then look again. And maybe, uh, maybe something was a little different than you realized. There. Bernie got anything for that? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, uh, going off that point, um, what really struck me was phone conversations where we would, you know, replay uh, a conversation verbatim, but just getting to see the characters actions on one side in one story and hearing the same dialogue, but seeing the characters actions on the other end of the line in the, in a different story. um, Just what an excellent way to go about it. You know, you're not necessarily feeding us any new, plot information i guess we're still getting the same dialogue but just we get this really subtle look that just you know changes it without beating us over the head with it right those scenes really uh they, they were nerve-wracking to write because it was like man if this doesn't bet, work, man. <laughs> this doesn't work somebody's stuck reading like five pages of something they already read and going like why the hell are you telling me this again uh, <laughs> like, and uh, phone conversations, which I think in most cases on there are pretty short. Um, however, there are a couple of longer. There's there's um, there's a scene between um, the uh, narrator of the second story when when he gets a visit from the narrator of the third story. Like she actually comes to his office, and the the scene is a fairly long scene that. I've got like the entire scene twice from two different angles. And it was just like, man, I hope that, that these like two separate revelations out of the same events, uh, work because if if they don't, it's just going to be frustrating to read. Um, there, there are classroom scenes as well that play twice where you see them first from the perspective of Macy and then later from the perspective of, of Edna Harris. Mm. You know what, though? I think it's so, you know, no, no I, I can't really speak to this uh, 100% because, you know, I I really enjoyed Summers with Annie before picking this up. So I already, you know, uh, knew slash suspected slash really hoped I was going to like it. Um, but uh, to Patrick's point earlier, he said that the first section, Act 1, just blew him out of the water. And, and me too. So... My thinking is, you know, if somebody's picking this book up and this is their first exposure to you, I feel like you earn their trust in that first act. So, you know, if I'm a reader who's new to this author and I read this, holy shit, like, look what this guy just did in the first 30 percent of this book. If if I'm sitting through stuff I've already sat through my you've got my attention um, I, I'm gonna, you, you, you've earned it with those first, you know, X number of pages and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let you drag me, you know, rehash events because there's gotta be a reason for it. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, I, uh, yeah, that doll story, um, for all of the enormous amounts of rewriting that were done 
throughout the years working on this, it uh, the doll story did not really transform a whole lot from its original first draft. And, and most of the changes that were made to the doll story were just made to link it better to the other two, that mm. the story itself didn't really change. And in fact, the story itself is, like I said, they were all, all three were based on dreams. That was the initial thing that linked the, t- the three together. And, and that was really the only one of the three where there was like a whole story to it. Um, and, you know, in, in, in real life, my, my mom did have a bunch of dolls in a doll room. <laughs> I had a much better relationship with my mom than the character <laughs> in the story does. That's good. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh greg's in a fake room the uh but yeah she she had that like that that house that they live in and i just really wrote it like based on the house that we lived in at the time and there there was a doll room in there with shelves that had a bunch of these uh porcelain uh, like s- stuffed uh cotton doll bodies with like porcelain heads on them that's so uh, creepy yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had, a, they had a bit of a creepy vibe to them, but uh, yeah, I just I had a dream about that house and and the, the a doll that had uh, I, I don't I don't think that they were separate colored eyes in the dream. I think they were just uh, it was uh, regular you know eyes. But the idea that I was seeing the eyes in different places besides the doll uh, happened throughout there. I, I think I cut something out of the dream that was like bees with the eyes or something. <laughs> Because it was like, yeah, that's uh, that's not gonna work. That that might work in a dream, but uh, you try and put that in a book, that's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was it was uh, it's fun. You know, it's uh, probably only once or twice in my life that a story has come to me that fully formed, just like out of the subconscious. But uh, but it's nice when it happens. It's we all strive for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would. I would love to be able to just write all of my stories in my sleep. <laughs> What's it been like working with Sam so far? Oh, it's been great. We, uh, yeah, it. Um, we worked on summers with Annie, and then uh, you know this is the the long form project we did shortly after that. Um, but yeah, we, we had a good time working on uh, summers with Annie, and she. she uh, <laughs> Did a did a great job at putting that book together. So I had I had plenty of confidence that uh, that she'd do do well by this one. Um, and uh, and yeah, just uh, throughout it's been uh, it's been a great process of back and forth. And I think uh, I think has managed to be a better book than it would be if she hadn't come on board. And uh, not to mention just a, a book that. Uh, that would have just sat there uh, gathering dust for, for the, you know, <laughs> probably for good. If, if she hadn't come along and been the one to uh, grab it up and, and uh, insist that we do something new with it. Well, I'm glad that she did. So your book is number four in her release order for off limits press. And so far it's four out of four great books, man. So she's, she's got a good eye. Yeah, that uh, it's quite a press. That uh, off limits at this point has been around, I think, uh, less than a year. Yep. Uh, 
and uh, yeah, already is just doing great. And they, and they got, I forget how many books are on that schedule that are uh, coming out later this year, but there are quite a few more. Mm. Uh, yeah, she's got an anthology. Uh, let's yeah, see, maybe. Catherine Catherine McCarthy's next. I forget who's after her. Eric LaRocca is September 1st. He has his collection coming out. There is another person who I'm forgetting, and I feel terrible about that. Something clear. <laughs> Something clear in October. Yes, yeah. Um, and actually, she just announced a little while ago, uh, Waylon Jordan. Uh, Pat, I think you read one of his books. Uh, he yep. has a book coming out through the press in uh, 2022. Yeah, so what I read for Waylon was a... Um, I'm probably going to butcher the order of these words, but forgive me. Uh, it's an LGBTQ uh, epic fantasy, and it's the first in a trilogy. Uh, I got an audiobook version. It's great. I loved it. Um, he's got the second one coming out soon, I think. So, yeah, he's a great writer. Another person that was in uh, Orsley Plans. Right, right. And he's there. The movie's got his. Uh... His story's getting adapted for the movie, I believe. Yeah, him, Haley Piper, Patrick Lacey, I forget the others. Hmm. Anything else on this book there, Brennan? No, if you've if you got somewhere you want to go, take us. <laughs> um yeah, so do you, are you Canadian or did you move to Canada? I, I couldn't get that straight myself. Um I'm I'm a dual citizen. Oh, okay. My my parents are Canadians, but I was born in the states. Oh, okay. Where uh, whereabouts in the states do you live? Um, at, at this point, I am uh, actually just moved into an apartment today in Boise, Idaho, um, which is uh, mostly where I grew up. I was born in uh, Los Angeles, um, and I, I've lived really all over the place. Los Angeles to Boise to Austin, Texas to Kissimmee, Florida to Cozumel, Mexico to Guangzhou, China back to Austin, Texas to Mattoon, Illinois on to Los Angeles again up to Vancouver, British Columbia uh, just recently and then uh, now back into Boise, Idaho. Any reason why? That's a hell of a lot of places over the globe, man. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, no, <laughs> no, no particular reason. They uh, they've all just sort of happened by chance that uh, somebody says, "Hey, there's a thing going on over here," and I go, "Yeah, I'm not doing anything." <laughs> I've been to Kissimmee. Uh, folks used to have a timeshare there. It's pretty great as a kid because uh, next door is Disney World. Yeah, and, yeah, you and can I'm see not them. Disney World fireworks. I remember you could see them from uh, my the balcony on the apartment where I was, and uh, it was just a pretty cool thing to have fireworks every night. <laughs> yeah, but what do you got a particular uh, favorite spot where you've lived so far? Uh, I, I I really loved. Uh, I only lived there for about four months, but I had a great time in Cozumel, Mexico. Uh, Living on that, living on the island there, um, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, 
Cozumel is mostly like uh, they they make most of their money from the tourists. Mm. And it's like it, cruise ships come in and they land on on one side of the island there, and there's this uh, strip of uh, uh, businesses that uh, is mostly owned by the cruise ship companies. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like it's like a little Las Vegas area over there in in Cozumel. But then it's like you go two or three streets back, and you're you're into like proper a proper Mexican uh, city where you, you know, you don't, uh, where, where the culture just feels a little different. You feel like you're in Mexico rather than feeling like you're in some tourist area that, uh, that has been built by American cruise ship companies. But it, it was, a, it was a nice uh, mixture. It was my first time uh, living outside of the U S uh, it wasn't my first time visiting, but it was my first time living outside. And uh, it, it just, uh, it, it made for a, a nice like transition of like uh, if you get homesick for your own culture, just walk three blocks that way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'll get your fill of it pretty quick because it's uh, it's just uh, an annoying party city over there. And then walk back to three blocks, and you'll be nice and happy that you're uh, you're in a different place, getting a new experience. Very odd. Uh, no, I like what? Uh, no, I I gotta know what brought you to China. Because the other ones, you know, that, that that accounts for some bouncing around. But at one point, you end up in China. Yeah, I lived there for about a year and a half. Uh, I was teaching English as a second language. Um, my my brother lived in China um, already at that point. He, I think, he spent about twelve years there. Just just recently moved to Canada, um, but. He uh, he had moved there and was teaching English. I was living in Cozumel, trying to scrape by with uh, writing money, uh, either from writing fiction or doing like freelance uh, SEO content and stuff. But uh, was kind of just barely staying above water there. And uh, my brother was it was looking like he might have to leave out of some visa problem in China. And he just told me like, well, my bosses trust me. Uh, if, you know, if you want to come over and just take over when I leave, uh, you know, I'll just tell him my, my brother's taking over and it'll be fine. And, you know, you'll make good money doing it. And I was like, huh? Yeah, I guess that sounds interesting. I could go do that. Uh, what was that like adjusting? I, I had to get like a visa for it and everything. And by the time I got it all done, my brother had actually sorted out the problems that were looking like they were going to have him leave. And at that point it was like, well, I just went to all the trouble of getting approved to go to China. And then he said like, well, I'll still introduce you to people. You'll get hired. No problem. Like, okay. Let's, let's give this a shot. Did you work with your brother? Uh, no, uh, at least not. I mean, I briefly uh, taught a few of his classes when I first arrived there just to kind of get a sense. I had no teaching background. Um, but, and I, I taught a class within like 24 hours of arriving. I, uh, I went into a class with him. He, uh, he had like his whole lesson on a thumb drive and went into the classroom. I sat in the, you know, he sort of introduced me to the class and then I just kind of sat there and watched him teach it. Then he went into another class and he did it a second time. And, uh, after doing it twice, he was like, Hey, uh, you want to take over after lunch and I'm, I'm going to go do something. <laughs> I was like, Oh, 
Okay, I guess uh, we're getting right into this then. Uh, so it was yeah, that was a that was an interesting uh, experience, but uh, yeah, and I, and I mean, not long after that, I, I I met with some people from a different school who gave me more of a proper full time job, and then I worked at one school, and my brother worked at a different one, and uh, didn't really didn't really do much together beyond the beyond the first few classes. What what was it like adjusting to that culture and in that world? No, I I loved it there for the first eight or ten months because um, it, it it just it felt like uh, there were there were just all sorts of adventures and like people people see you uh, and and uh, I don't know just invite you to do things that uh, you would never expect to end up doing. And, uh, you know, you end up uh, like having, having tea in strangers houses, uh, just because they saw you walking down the street and they hadn't met a foreigner before. And, uh, it's, it's just like, it's really fun to just kind of like be a, an experience for people. Um, but there were, there were just a hundred little things that irritated me that, uh, you know, it, it would be like. Uh, you know, extremely crowded areas and people constantly yelling across buildings to each other. You know, you'd be sitting in a restaurant or something and someone would be yelling from one table to another and you're like, why don't you go over there and talk to them? (laughs) It's just a ton of little things like that, that uh, after eight or 10 months, I'd I'd start to, uh, uh, I don't know, I just just started to want to find something different to do. Um, The novelty of it, uh, of of being in a new place, uh, sort of wore off. I, I don't know. I had, uh, most, most of the time that I spent there, I, I had a, I had a great time with it. But, uh, by the time that I left after a year and a half, I was, I was happy to go somewhere else and try something else different. That's a hell of a life, man. Brennan, anything else on this uh, subject? Yeah. You know, I'm wondering, you know, being in two, well, three, if you count the United States, bouncing around between three countries and a bunch of different cities. Do you feel like all that life experience uh, impacted your writing? Uh, well, I mean, every everything impacts uh, a little. I mean, you're using all of all of yourself and all of your experiences and stuff when you, when you write, hopefully. Um, but... Uh, I don't know. I mean, many, many of those places I've, I've, uh, uh, played with in, in short stories. Eventually I, I have, uh, I wrote a thing set in Cozumel recently that I'm, I'm hoping will make it into a, an anthology that I, I sent it off to. And, uh, I have, uh, I have a story set in, uh, China that, uh, that I like a lot, but, uh, I've, I've, uh, I've had trouble placing it anywhere. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I, I like, uh, I, 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 I try to bring some of it into the, into the writing and in those forms and certainly, uh, you know, just various, uh, similarities and differences between various people that you encounter are, are always handy in, in creating characters and interactions between people. Um, 
but yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard to spot the concrete ways that, uh, that something like, like that plays into, plays into being a writer, but, uh, it, I, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, that all of it bleeds in there in, in many smaller ways. There's got to be a story where a family in China sees you walking down the street and invites you in for tea because you're the new person in town and it just goes south from there. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's you know, a setup for a horror story. <laughs> I uh I was in China at the time that um Edward Snowden in the US uh fled to Hong Kong and that whole story was was breaking. And uh, I remember from that week that I was I was walking down a street in China and this family saw me and started waving me into their house and gave me tea and stuff and then asked if I was Snowden. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, you know, I was I was uh, thinner and I was clean shaven. I had glasses on. I looked a little like him. Uh, So it was it was was just a funny moment of, of like. What a guy to get mistaken for. Uh, <laughs> seems almost a little dangerous to be mistaken for him. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't so, really want to be him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if uh, maybe there could have been a story in there somewhere. How about we jump to what are you reading now? What am I reading? You know, I'm reading the. Uh, uh, I had a story in this anthology, but I'm just now getting around to reading it. Uh, Hall Dark Holidays. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yep. Yep. That <laughs> uh, was it. Was like uh, Gabino Iglesias, like right before Christmas, came up with this idea for a Christmas anthology, um, and uh, gave people like three weeks. <laughs> submit to it or something of uh you know a a hallmark style uh feel good story that's suddenly destroyed by monsters and uh yeah so i uh i i sent a thing off to that and had a story in it but until now i'd just not gotten around to uh reading through it and it's (laughs) it's a lot of fun there's some good stuff in here i Uh, i don't think it was even three weeks but you know Props, props to him and and anybody who got accepted, and frankly, anybody who got a story, sub, you know, cleaned up and submitted to that. Yeah, it was a tight deadline. I don't know how he did it. Undertaking. I, I, can't, yeah. I can't imagine how you read through all of those and make selections, and uh, you know, that's. Uh, <laughs> I. Uh, you know, it was tough enough to write a story in a couple of weeks. I, I don't know how he managed to. Uh, read through them and, and find an a- anthology out of it. Yeah, just he, he kind of uh, disproved any publisher in the indie game that says it's too time-consuming to send a personalized rejection back because he's one person and read through like 700 yeah, stories. Cool. Yeah, from the way it sounds, he sent like every single person a personal rejection. Yeah. That's, well, he, uh, did, he did. I, I mean, the man must not sleep. He, you know... Everybody, the the rest of the world world goes to bed. Gabino edits and punches Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Brian, what, yeah, what are you? I, uh... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Greg. Go ahead. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am uh I am reading I just started Consider This by uh Chuck Polinick. It's a kind of uh memoiry and on writing type book. Um basically just a bunch of stuff that he's learned throughout his career and you know the dude's been writing great stuff for like 25 years now so if he's learned something I'm willing to listen. <laughs> You're willing to consider it. I am willing to consider it. Yes. <laughs> smart. That's it's very pretty smart. good. The as are you getting a lot out of it so far? Well, I've I've read about approximately five pages of it. So um, <laughs> I read the table of contents. That looked very promising. <laughs> no, I mostly read the uh, I, I read the introduction just this afternoon, and, and it it looks cool. It looks it looks like it's going to be um, very anecdotal. A lot of stories, um, kind of behind the scenes stuff. But uh, I, again, I've you know I've read everything he's put out, and I'm not going to miss this one read a little of uh, i mean I've, I've read most of what he's put out I've, I've read a little of his nonfiction, uh not not a whole um what i think he did two two books come to mind one was uh like fugitives and refugees that was about um like areas around where he grew up or something but there, there was, was like a series and i i don't know of any other authors who participated in it but they essentially wrote like the I don't know if sorted is the right word, but like, you know, he wrote about Portland in that book and it's not necessarily, it, it's not going to read like, you know, a field guide to Portland. You know, he, yeah. we, he's going to let you know that there are, you know, more strip clubs per square mile in Portland than any other city in the U S like that's the type of stuff <laughs> you're going to get in there, <laughs> which is yeah. true by the way. <laughs> Good to know. Yep. So I'm uh, about four hours into four or five hours into Fears audio ver- uh, version uh, by Ronald Kelly. Really digging it so far, and uh, I'm about to jump into holding up a copy of Shane Hawk's Anoka. It's his first release, self-published collection, and it has a lot of a uh, lot of hype. So I'm really looking towards that. Indigenous horror. Um, not my first indigenous horror, but I'm very much so looking towards this. I like the cover. I mean, uh, you know, I find myself, the more I read uh, from people I haven't heard of before, of, you know, uh, werewolf stories, vampires, whatever, the more I'm finding out that there's a million more ways that I just haven't read yet that are amazing. Because for a while I thought, like, you can't do anything else with a werewolf story or pick any other, you know, classic monster. But there are so many other ways to do it. I love it. I um I read Ronald Kelly's Undertaker's Moon, and that's a werewolf story. And he they, they just he nailed it. So, I don't know. Uh, the more books you read, the better. That's what I'm basically getting at. <laughs> Um, so Greg, is there anything you are currently working on or anything that you will be working on soon that you can talk about? Uh, man, I don't, I don't know if I can talk about, uh, anything, uh, it's like I've got, I've got all these projects that I'm working on, but I'm like, I don't, I don't know if any of them are at a point where I should be saying much about them, uh, <laughs> so far. I mean, uh, I'm. Uh, for one thing, I'm, I'm waiting on uh, a lot of the uh, uh, like exclusivity windows on various short stories that I've put out to expire because I want to uh, 
in the fairly near future compile a lot of those into a collection. Uh, I've still never really put out a collection unless you consider In Nightmares Were Alone to be a collection. Uh, uh, that's more like a, I would consider it like a mosaic novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really think of it as a collection, but I've, I've heard, uh, I've seen reviews that called it a collection, and I, I wouldn't really argue with them either. It, uh, <laughs> it, it kind of is, but um, but yeah, I, I you know I like uh, horror short story collections a lot, and just have have, uh, have never gotten around to doing one. And at, at this point, uh, just from writing from various anthologies and magazines and stuff I've, I've collected quite a few short stories that uh I've, i'm starting to try and put together into um a couple of different uh categories that i think would sort of uh complement each other nicely that you know i've probably got about one uh collection worth might need might need one or two new stories that i still need to write and then mm-hmm. uh, Probably got half of a second collection together at this point already. Oh, wow. so, uh, I I hope that uh, that you know uh, I'll I'll have uh, I'll be able to put out a collection in the next year or two um, of of uh, you know I'm I'm gonna try and split it to where it's like a, a about two thirds of the stories are uh, stuff that's collected from previous publications and about one third or completely new so that everybody's getting something um but uh yeah i I mean that's that's probably of the stuff that i'm working on that's uh (laughs) that's like the only thing that i'm like i'm happy to mention that not a problem Uh, understood i have uh you know uh, uh at least one film screenplay that's that's going fairly well that may or may not end up as something. I have a pilot that's out there that uh, you know we'll see if it turns into something. I have uh, a novel that I'm working on that I don't really want to talk about. <laughs> it's got all sorts of uh, stuff that uh, I don't know. I don't know what the timeline is, and uh, I uh, hope that it uh, eventually happens, but. Uh, it, uh, it's it's always just uh, I don't know. I'm always afraid to say too much about something too soon. That's that's probably for the best. I mean, you don't want to say anything if it doesn't happen. So, where can people follow you? Oh, well, um, I at the, at the moment I'm still on Facebook and Twitter, though I'm I'm looking at uh, soon uh, sort of moving my online self just to a, a personal blog. So I've got gregcisco.com, which will be around for a good long while. And uh, Facebook and Twitter are both uh, are both still there, at least for the next few months, I think. <laughs> Very good. Is there any final thoughts, any final comments that you have, Greg? Uh, final. Very good. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I got. <laughs> All right, so nothing, Brennan. Anything from you? <laughs> no, just thank you for your uh, for your time spending an hour and a half with us on a Friday night. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you could, Thanks for having me on. It's, uh, you you could it's, be partaking in that Boise nightlife. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I 
I've spent all morning moving, and I've still got some more stuff to move. So I, I, uh, I think nightlife's a few, uh, a few days off at least. <laughs> um, so, Greg, thank you. We appreciate you coming on. Brennan, thank you as always. Listeners, thank you for joining us with another conversation. And uh, next Monday, we will have Tim Lebanon. So stay tuned for that. You have many options and podcasts to choose. Thank you for picking us. And we'll see you next time. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.